So today we are in Amos chapter 1. It's good to be back with you guys again. I hope you had a great 4th of July. Um, we had a lot of family in for our part. Uh, this morning we were up on the North Campus teaching a Sunday school on uh, Bible study methods, Ione and I. And uh, so it was fun to come right back down the interstate and get an opportunity to open God's word with you guys. So as we get started, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy. I thank you for Amos, Lord, and the message that you gave to him to give to others. I pray, Father, that as we walk through these prophets, that one, you'll help me to be clear as we uh, look at what he actually says in chapters one and two. But also, Father, I pray that all of us will just be able to put aside those things that are dominating our minds right now, our spirits. And I pray, Father, that we would just be uh, walking in your spirit listening with an open heart and ready and able to receive whatever message you have for us today. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully you all, when you walked in, got a nifty, handy-dandy little chart. Shouldn't have cost you anything, right? So make sure that you have that available in a second. As I was thinking about this, walking through Amos, and just recently we did Habakkuk, uh, it kind of came to me that we really haven't done an overview of why we have what we have. And I think it's helpful when we start reading through the what's called the minor prophets that we have an understanding of why they're there and what it is that is inside of them. And the way that I like to look at this is if we look at the Jewish Bible, which is just our Old Testament, sometimes they call it the Testament, but if you were to go into a bookstore today and ask for the Jewish Bible, they would steer you to the part of the bookstore, the spiritual side, and you would get a copy of what's called the Tanakh. The Tanakh sounds kind of like a weird word, but it's basically an acronym for the three sections of the Jewish Old Testament. The Ta, the Torah, the Na, which is Nevim, which is the prophets, and then the Ka is the Kethuvian. And so this is the law, the prophets, and the writings. And what's instructive for us today, I think, as we're looking at the prophets, is that when we see this, this would give us a clue as to how these books have traditionally been handled and understood uh, through the centuries. Now, there's a group of people that did a lot of transcribing of the Old Testament from one generation to the next. And many of you have heard those stories of how precise they were and how important it was to them. It was almost like a religious exercise when they copied the Hebrew from one old parchment to a new one because they didn't want to make any mistakes. This, after all, is God's word, right? Well, they gave us some clues as they did that, such as they referenced the Torah not as Genesis, Exodus, and so forth, five different books, they reference it simply as the book of Moses. It's one book in their mind. And that's how they treat it. They see Genesis as chapter 1, Exodus as chapter 2, and so forth. It's much, much later that we came up with all of the chapter divisions, the Greek titles for each book, and so forth. Similarly, when we get to the prophets, the second section of the Tanakh, 
There is the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets are some people that might surprise you were lumped together in with the rest of the prophets, right? Such as Joshua and Judges, Samuel, Kings. And it's not First and Second Samuels and First and Second Kings. It's just Samuel and Kings, and it's not, right? And then the latter prophets are the ones that we're more familiar with, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. And when you get to the 12, they are almost always on the same scroll as we have found. And they are not referenced as 12 individual books, right? They are the 12, the book of the 12. Never were they intended to be read in isolation from each other. So sometimes when we come along and like we're doing a preaching series right now through the prophets, we are thinking, well, I'm going to get ahead of Dave this week and I'm going to open up and read Amos chapters 1 and 2 in preparation for today's sermon. And if you're like a lot of us, when you open that up, you're like, well, that's very interesting. What in the world does this have to do with anything that I'm, that I'm currently going through? Or what does this even mean? And I'm going to challenge us today to think of it this way. There is a order in which these books have been placed. Somewhere, long after Hosea and Amos and Joel and all those people gave us their messages, a guy came along and put these in an arranged order for the chronology of the canon, and it was with a purpose. It was with a design. And that design was so that when we read these, we can have understanding of what God is trying to say. And the overarching theme for the book of the 12 is judgment and restoration. Now, if you went through Habakkuk, you have absolutely no problem seeing that, right? Uh, judgment, restoration. Judgment, restoration. It just happens over and over again. But what's really neat is that we find little clues left by uh, the redactor, in a sense, the guy who put all these together in the order that he did so that we can have an understanding of where they're going. So if you will, if you've got your Bible with you this morning, you want to look at the very first book that is included in the book of the Twelve, Hosea, that interesting story of the very godly man who is ordered by the Lord to go out and find a prostitute to marry, a woman of ill repute, and then lift her, elevate her to being equal in cherished loved, you know, and so forth, as an illustration of God's relationship with Israel, and that whole story unfolds. <clears throat> but if you look in chapter 3, you have a kind of a weird little pericope, a little weird statement. I'm going to just jump down from to chapter 3, verse 3, and it is written, and I said to her, this is Hosea speaking to his wife, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I also will be with you. For the children of Israel, and this is the important part, shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come to fear to the Lord, come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So what do we have in four? We have a pronouncement of judgment. This is what's going to happen. Israel nor Judah will have a king or a prince to sit upon the throne for many, many, many days. And then immediately following that is a promise of restoration. There will come a time when they're going to seek their God and David their king. 
And the reason this is so strange here is because Hosea is writing to the northern kingdom, which didn't recognize any longer the kinghood of King David. They were under different kings. They did not recognize that the Judah tribes had any authority over the north. So it seems like a weird thing for Hosea to write in here. Most of us believe that this statement is put here as sort of a way of encapsulating the rest of the book of the 12. If we're going to see this as one whole book, then what we have here is the kickoff point. What we need to see is that in each of these books, and this is so cool, there is a seam, as Mike Shepard calls it, there is a seam that links each book to each book. So if you turn to the end of Hosea, and you're looking at that, chapter 14, down to verse 9, he says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressions stumble in them. But excuse me, transgressors stumble in them. And then if you switch to Joel, the very next page, our seam is connected, beginning in verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. When we say seam, we're saying there's a connection. Just like a seam in a garment, uh, there is a part where the one had never been together with the other part, but now they're being put together, and there's a sewing job done. And the man who is editing these Book of the Twelve for us wants us to understand that Hosea bleeds into Joel. Joel is going to bleed into Amos and so forth. And there are certain marks of these scenes, such as the statements made really have nothing to do with the prophetic message that is inherent within that book. Now, by seeing these scenes, it takes nothing away from the historicity of the message of Hosea or Obadiah or Micah or any of the prophets. But what it does do is it allows us to see how they understood them. So from Hosea, we can jump right into Joel, who is consumed with the idea of the day of the Lord. And we, when we look at the end of Joel, we'll see another scene. Another mark of the scene is that it's going to speak to judgment and restoration every time. Judgment, and in a sense, messianic restoration. The Messiah will come and set all things right. That is a huge point in each of these scenes. And the third mark of that scene is that it's going to be a rehash or a direct quote from the book of Jeremiah. And you think, well, why would Hosea be quoting Jeremiah? What does Amos have to do with Jeremiah? And it's just a literary style device that the guy who put these together for us at the beginning and at the end either borrowed from Jeremiah or the actual prophet did. So when I get to the end of Joel, before we get into our book for the day of Amos, I'm looking at chapter 3, and I'm going to fall down to verse 16, and it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. There's your judgment. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. There's your restoration. And this, if you want to look it up sometimes, is almost a direct quote of Jeremiah 25, 30. So here's the idea. The book of the 12, the prophets, were all dependent upon and saw Jeremiah as the greatest prophet of their day. Either he preceded them 
or he was right at their contemporary times. And so they quote Jeremiah over and over again. We even see this in the New Testament. When Jesus says, and Jeremiah says, to the Jews of the first century, he might as well have just said, and the prophet says. Because when you read what he's quoting, you think, well, this isn't found in Jeremiah. This might be in Zephaniah. This might be in uh, Haggai or something. But what he's meaning by that, and this is what Jeremiah says, is he's going along with the Jewish Old Testament understanding that all the prophets exist under the umbrella of Jeremiah. Now, this is pretty cool when you get to the end of these 12. The last book, Malachi, if you were to look at that before the New Testament, you realize that even that has a seam in it. And you say, why would that have a seam? It's the last book of the Testaments. However, in the Jewish arrangement of the canon, there's a whole other section to come. Malachi is the end of the Nephilim, the prophets, but then coming still are the writings, and it begins with Psalm 1. So as I'm looking at the end of Malachi, looking at chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him <coughs> at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There's your restoration statement. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. If you go to Psalm 1, it picks right up there with who is this man of God? What is this supposed to be about? And then you realize that even Psalm 1 has elements of Jeremiah in it. So you see this theme going on through Scripture. And here's the cool part of this, if you remember nothing else of what I just said. When you get to the Gospels, the people of the Gospels are fully aware of this pattern. God has spoke through Hosea, he has spoken through Joel, he has spoken through Amos, and on down the line, all the way to Malachi. And the message in each book gets expanded upon if Hosea is talking about God in Israel, Joel is talking about the judgment of the day of the Lord, Amos is talking about Israel and what's going to come in chapter 9, and so forth. And even when we get into the books dedicated to Edom, like Obadiah, Edom in the Hebrew is just another word for people, for humanity. And what we can see as a developing theme through here is the Messiah's coming. There's going to be judgment first. But when that Messiah comes, there will be restoration. And secondly, the Gentiles are going to be part of that restoration. They are the peoples of the world. How did the scribes, how did the Pharisees, how did the Sanhedrin of the first century miss this message? A lot was lost in those 400 years of silence. But not to the people like you who can read these books. So when you read Amos, I can only encourage you that when you have time to sit down and read these 12 books, which are all very short, as one book, because that's how they were intended to be understood. <coughs> I said earlier that sometimes we might think, well, there were 12 different scrolls, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and so forth, but actually there's one scroll, and they're all these books are literally seamed together. It's one understood idea. Judgment, restoration. Judgment, restoration. And the great news for you and me is that that includes 
those of us who are Gentiles. We are part of the new story. We're part of what God was looking for. Unfortunately, for the people of Israel, when the Messiah actually came and those promises were to be fulfilled, they rejected the message as they rejected the messenger, just like in Jesus' parable of the son of the vineyard owner. He was not allowed to fulfill what God had fulfilled for him. So something's yet to come. The Messiah will not always be rejected by his people. So that being understood, I hope you were with me on that, we can jump into Amos. Now if you take out your chart, we're going to be looking at this side of the chart. And we're just, that just helps us to put it in an easily visual way of what's going on in these first two chapters. We don't know a whole lot about Amos. He just shows up on the scene one day. We know he's a shepherd, probably not the guy out there with a shepherd's crook watching 50 sheep, but he is the guy who is the head of shepherds, more than likely. He is probably a man of importance. He lives in the southern kingdom, on Tekoa, and God has laid a message on his heart for the northern tribes of Israel. How many of you watched the little video that was online this week under Parkview Central, East, and North? One? All right. Well, good deal. So what's, what's happening here is that Jeroboam II is the king, and he's been very successful in warfare and increasing the wealth of the northern ten tribes. And Amos has been sent to him to say, not so fast. I have this against you. And he's going to talk to him about the false worship places like Bethel, where they have already put a golden calf. And the people of Israel are tempted to go into those uh, places of worship and reject the worship of Jehovah. But in addition to that, the northern ten tribes have wholeheartedly embraced the worship of the Phoenician gods, the, Philist the Philistine gods, the gods of Moab, Edom, and so forth. And since, you can walk right down through chapter 1 and 2 and look at all the different nations whose gods they were worshiping. That's the point of these two uh, chapters, is God is sending a message of judgment to them. Now, when we understand that, then we're going to notice the pattern. If you jump down to verse uh, 2, and he says, this is Amos writing, and he said, the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. A great statement of judgment. And then he says, thus says the Lord. And this pattern will be used over and over again, no matter which nation he's talking about. For three transgressions of, in this case is Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So God's going to call on car the carpet, if you look on your chart, each one of those nations in the top row, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites, the Moabites, even Judah, but specifically Israel. Remember, Amos' message is for the northern ten tribes. So as he goes down through there and you're reading this, and you're thinking, well, what did they do? He then lists the things that they're being accused of, and I have that listed in the second column going across, and then he pronounces judgment. So let's just take Damascus for an example. Verse 4, so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. So that's what he's going to do. I'm going to destroy you because you have threshed Gilead, you've been threshing with sledges of iron, basically that's imagery of war. 
uh, you've not kept the peace. And then he says, I will break the gate bar of Damascus. This is the judgment. <coughs> and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kurt. Now, if you know nothing about scripture, if you know nothing about the ancient Near East and you read this, you're going to say, well, that's fascinating. Thank you very much. I, I don't know where Ben-Hadad is. I don't know what Damascus is. And if they're going to get exiled to Kerr, maybe that's a better place. Who knows? But you get the feeling that this is a judgment, that this is a harsh thing to say. So Amos is going to pick out all of the nations that surround Israel. That's where he's going. And all of them have a historic significance to the nation and tribe of Israel. Uh, Damascus, that if you drop down to the next one, it's Gaza. And Gaza, of course, is mentioned along with other ones that are uh, major cities in their day. But people who have been at warfare with them, Tyre, what did they do? Well, they delivered a people to Edom. They did not remember the covenant. Most people think this is in reference to the fact that David at one time was really good friends with Hiram, king of Tyre. Remember when he was building uh, things and making forts? And that Tyre sent down cedar wood to him all the time and so forth. But since those days, <coughs> that has disappeared. Um, Edom, there is no pity for their second cousins. Uh, Edomites are descendants of Esau, of course. Uh, they're anger and wrath. They're full of violence. The Ammonites and the Moabites, who remembers where they came from? Those weird tribes? Lot. That is right. The horrible destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're fleeing the fire and brimstone. The daughters go to a cave with their dad. They get him drunk. They have relations with him, and they produce children. Ammon, right, and Moab. So they are in judgment, and they've been in judgment from that time to the present. The Ammonites in particular are, are guilty of violence. Um, the Moabites have burned bones to ashes, possibly a reference to uh, offering children to false gods and so forth. So those are the secular, the pagan nations that are in light here. Running throughout chapter 1 and a bit into uh, chapter 2. <coughs> and then notice the, the announcement of judgment. I picked out the verbs in that third column. Every one of them is going to be put into fire and they're going to be devoured. Several of them have to experience exile. This is God's judgment on these people and on these nations. We don't know if Amos went to every one of those nations and made his proclamation. My guess is he went directly to Israel, to Jeroboam, and his message was made loud and clear. All those people that you've relied on, instead of Jehovah God, I will separate you from them. They will not any longer be there available for you to run to. They will not be your physical defense. They will not be your military defense. Their gods cannot help you. The pivotal point of this whole thing is right back at the top. I will not revoke the punishment. Now, last time I was here with Habakkuk, we talked about how there's judgment, and then there's restoration, and we talked about the time period. This time in Amos, we're looking at the fact that there is no time period. There is no availability for mercy. There is no time for them to repent. They will be punished. 
and in some cases utterly destroyed. The only ones that have a hope for restoration, in fact, are Judah and Israel. Let's look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4, excuse me, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. That's one thing to write in here if you're taking notes. God's people will always be held at a higher level of judgment than those who do not know the Lord. Judah, the southern two tribes of Israel, knew the law. They knew his statutes. They had been given many blessings, but they will not escape their breaking of those laws. And it says, after which their fathers faltered. And then the next verse, so I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now we know historically that happened, right? We go back to Habakkuk with the threat of the Babylonians coming down to them. And that actually happened 586 years before Christ. So Amos is not going to spend a whole lot of time on Judah. He's going to focus, though, on the tribe that he's trying to hit up, and that is Israel. And that's where he's going to spend the bulk of chapter 2 in judgment. Starting in verse 6. For thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profane. There's a lack of justice in Israel. Those who are poor, those who are marginal, they have nowhere to turn for justice. There's no one who's standing up for them. Uh, verse 8, they lay themselves down besides every altar, on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Paganism. <coughs> Idolatry. Verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the heights of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. He's referencing the giants they saw when they were back in the wilderness, when they came out of Egypt with Moses. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So whatever God had set up for their salvation, for their restoration, they continuously overcame those in their own uh, stubborn ways. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, commanded them not to prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in the day, declares the Lord. So God is laying out all these things that he has against Israel. And I have in your second column there, they sell the righteous, there's no justice. They profane the Lord's name by forcing the prophets not to prophesy. Uh, there's misuse of items that had been given to the temple. God just lists thing after thing that they have done. And then the judgment, they're going to be pressed down, they're going to be stripped naked, and even their mightiest will not escape 
God's wrath. What do we do with this? We understand the message. All of these nations, which, by the way, as I think I said, surround Israel, making Israel actually the geographical bullseye of Amos's message, they're all going to go down in flames. And Israel may live to see them each go down. And fear will begin to mount. And if they remember the words of the prophets, and it's not just Amos talking about this, they are going to get very, very nervous. And in fact, 700 years before the time of Christ, the Assyrians did their job. They came roaring in there. They were a much more violent empire than the Babylonians would be to the Judites later. But when they came in there, they just completely destroyed the houses, the cities. They tore apart the pregnant women, as it says. Uh, they sowed the land with salt so that nothing would grow there in the future. And then infamously, they're the ones that put uh, men on spikes and lined the road from uh, Bethel to Nineveh with dead men. All of this to show them that they were the most powerful nation in the world. But in fact, what we know is happening behind the scenes is that God used a pagan nation to exercise discipline against his people. Now, historically, not much is known about the ten tribes. The Mormons try to say that they're actually one of the ten tribes, but from what we know, that just isn't the case. They, they ended up intermarrying with all of the people, the nations around them. They lost their identity. And if God's going to raise that identity up in the future, that remains to be seen. The Babylonians, when they take the people of Judah into exile, they're there for some 70 years. They get to come back, right? under Ezra and Nehemiah in a post-exilic community and established the temple in their homes. And there's a revival under Ezra, as we read in the book of Ezra. At that time, Malachi is prophesying. And I think the thing that we need to recognize is that even those things happened, even though they were allowed to come back, this was not the restoration that Amos is talking about or that any of the other prophets are leading up to. I don't want to steal whoever's going to be preaching here in a few weeks, but if you want to look with me to Amos chapter 9, we get a tremendous statement of restoration. I'll just quickly kind of touch on this, starting in verse 11 of chapter 9. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Now why would the northern tribes care about the southern tribe of David? And I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom in all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. The mountains shall drip, drip sweet wine and all the hills shall... So listen to the promise of this restoration. There's going to come a day when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. The guy who's planting seed will just barely get it planted in time for the guy who is reaping the crop to get it out of the pasture. In other words, we're so abundantly blessed, we're so enriched that there is no gap time between the one and the other. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Uh, verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Has this happened yet? Not to the extent that it had been under David. 
and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in the land, and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of that land I have given them. As you read through these prophets, that promise seems to be made over and over and over. What is God doing? He's telling them to look forward to something. Even though you're going into a time of great discipline, know that things are going to change. If you flip your chart over on the back side, I listed some principles for you. There's a lot to get out of this, but these are just some of the big ones. First of all, the thing that should impact us is that God doesn't forget. Judgment didn't happen immediately following the wicked acts of Moab and the Ammonites and so far. If you read the history of Israel as they're traveling with, in the book of Exodus, and you see that Moab is trying to get prophets to prophesy against them, and different tribes are coming out to them in warfare. When they need water, when they need food, they're denied. And why in the world does God wait till now to exercise his judgment on these nations? And I think the corollary to that is he doesn't forget. I don't know about you, but there have been times when in my heart I have been very disobedient to the Lord. I especially remember, kind of like in a figurative sense, dipping my toe into the water. Like, if I do this, what will God say? Nothing. He's not judging me. Therefore, it must be good, or he didn't have time today to deal with me. I used to be a follower when I was a young Christian of a guy by the name of Mike Warnke, if you're old enough to remember him from the 70s. He wrote a book called The Satan Seller, and it's a story of a young man from California who got involved with Satanism, and he goes through this whole explanation of all the vile things that he did. He eventually comes to know Christ, and supposedly, uh, starting in the 80s and for sure the 90s, he sets up a hospital, in a sense, uh, a spiritual hospital for people who have been involved in satanic ritual abuse and so forth, and they're coming to Kentucky. So my brother and I love this guy's message. We thought he was great. He comes to O'Neill, Nebraska, because we invite him, and he's going to speak, and he's telling us his story, and then he's saying to us, would you mind if I pick up an offering while I'm here tonight for all those kids who are suffering from satanic ritual abuse? And we're like, well, we were kind of doing this as an outreach. We really don't want to pick up an offering. Uh, we don't want people to get the thought that this is all about money. But he became very insistent. And there were several things that weekend that made us stop and pause and think, what is going on here? Well, literally three days after he left us, a big article comes out in Cornerstone Christian Magazine exposing Mr. Warnke for the fraud that he was. There was no satanic ritual abuse hospital. There was no Satanism in his past. Uh, in fact, the people that knew him in college who were not believers were thinking, how can this guy just make Christians believe everything he has to say? It was a sad day for me. It was a sad day for those of us who were involved in that ministry. But maybe nothing was as sad as once word got out all the churches that still had him come and speak. He was a false prophet by his own admission. Now, he told us before he left, he said, you may be hearing some things about me that are coming out, and I wonder, how much can you forgive? How big of a Christian are you? 
Right there, that should send bells. Ding, 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 yeah. But I was young and dumb. So, yeah. And I've so many times asked God, why did you allow him to do that? Why didn't you judge him right then? Why didn't you judge him earlier? And I don't know the ways of God. But one thing I do know from what we're seeing in Amos 1 and 2 is God does not forget. The day is coming when judgment will happen. Whether that's for you and me, whether that's for those around us, whether we're focused on those who are doing great injustices in our society, it doesn't matter. God will not forget. He is a righteous, just God. We don't hear that message too often today. We'd rather focus on the fact that Jesus is love. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, anyone who doesn't love knows not God, 1 John chapter 4. But the fact is that God is coming in wrath. That judgment is still going to happen. Secondly, we don't want to spiritualize the judgments that we read about today. Assyria actually came down. They did what Amos said that they would do. They destroyed the northern ten tribes and all of these nations. That ship has sailed. We don't need to try to spiritualize those truths into where we're living today. But what we do want to look at is the next principle there is that the cross is where we need to be focused. In Amos's day, there wasn't a cross. It hadn't happened yet. The incarnation hadn't happened. Jesus hadn't come as a babe to Bethlehem. But now we have that. And all the world stands judged in the light of that incarnation. We can look at that cross and recognize that the penalty has been paid for our sins. And we need to get to that cross as quickly as possible. And we need to take others with us to that point. But through that cross is the only place that we're going to see restoration. It's the only place that we're going to see that Jesus has got uh, the world where he wants it. I, I think of Romans chapter 14 where it says that every knee, whether it's above the earth, on the earth, or below the earth, will bow before Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, we have to live our lives with that knowledge. We may not see justice in the things that we experience. We may, may be the victims of the anger and, and false beliefs of others. But the day is coming that judgment will happen. And God does not forget. But further, if we can, we need to take as many people to that cross as possible. Here's a story I love where a guy, uh, his wife had died, and then he got news that his wife or his daughter and her husband, who lived in another state, had been in a bad car accident. And in fact, they had been killed. And they left two young daughters. And so he felt it was his duty to move from where he lived to this other state and take care of those girls. I think they were like eight and nine at the time, somewhere in that range. And when he did so, he raised them, and he tried to give them good things to believe in, uh, try to lead them to the Lord, try to give them balance, try to take them to that cross. But as they got older and older, it became apparent there was so much anger in their hearts against God and against his representative, the only one they knew, the grandfather, that they wanted nothing to do with what he had said. In fact, when the oldest daughter turned 18, she got a letter in the mail from an attorney telling her that the house that they lived in 
and whatever of the estate was left was in fact hers and her sister's. That the grandfather was just there as a favor, really without any legal claim to the estate. Knowing this, that oldest daughter confronted her grandfather and said, you need to get out of here. This is our house. And the grandfather says, I never said it wasn't. But they said, get out of here. We're, we'll finish doing what we have to do in life. And they, and they kicked him out. And it wasn't for many, many years later that they found out that that grandfather was one of the wealthiest men in his area. He owned lands. He owned houses. He had such a rich inheritance for them. And they rejected it. For what? For the small little house that they had been left to them by their mother. They rejected everything so that they might keep something. And as the story goes, eventually, because of the way they lived their life, they lost that house. They lost all the funds that came with it. And they were destitute. And not until many years later did they come back to the father and say, we need help, to the grandfather. I don't know what happened from that point, if the grandfather welcomed with open arms or what. But what a picture of this message from Amos. People want to hold on to what we have. Think about how we live our lives every day. Oh, I want to get a good education. I want to get a great job. I need to earn so much money so that I can live in a standard that is worthwhile. Maybe I'm comparing myself to everyone else in Iowa City. Uh, I want to prepare for retirement. I want to take care of my kids and my grandkids. But rarely do we look at our grandfather, which is our God in heaven, and say, Father, what do you want from me? You own everything. You are the wealthiest individual in the universe. What am I missing? What do you have for me that I am holding on to something else in its place? When we read these prophets, it should be directing us to that future vision. Think about it. What is going to happen at the end of time when the dead are raised and we come together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, according to the word? When we sit down at that marriage feast of the Lamb and we share of that table and we see the bread broken and the wine poured and we see the scars on Jesus' hands and he's going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave you? You're my people. What did you hang on to that was of insignificant value while you missed all that I had for you? I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? Of that place, eye has not seen nor ear heard. All these promises in Scripture about how great it is what Jesus has, it's, it's a calling to living our lives as believers recklessly for Jesus Christ. Whatever we're holding on to has become our idols. And don't mistake, that's exactly what Israel was doing. They were holding on to their idols. We need to live our lives free of that. Whatever Jesus asks us to do, we go and do. Whatever he demands of us, we just say, yes, sir. What are we holding on to? The more stuff that we have, the cars, the houses, and all that stuff, gets in the way of our vision. It gets in the way of our freedom, of our flexibility before God. So I challenge you this morning, if you're reading through this book, by the time you get to the end of it, ask yourself, what have I said no to God about? What have I just said, no, that's too high a cost 
I can't be that flexible. And then repent of that. Say, God, whatever you want, I'm your person. I'm ready to go. I'm with you 100%. It may cost you something. It may cost you a lot. For some of us, depending on what God's telling you to do, it may cost you everything. But our brothers and sisters in Christ around this world, they're hearing the message of Amos. They're hearing the message of Jeremiah. They see the 12 because they're living it. They're living it because it costs them something to say that I am a Christian. That time may be coming for us in this country even. But for now, we just need to ask God, how can I be more flexible? What can I get rid of? Uh, I like an old saying that uh, some of the early church fathers had. It said, no wealth, all Christ. No wealth, all Christ. That's a hard thing to live by. But how often have we seen that money, possessions, life goals get in the way of what God really wants to say to us? God doesn't forget. He promises restoration. And we need to be ready for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this message, Lord. Amos had a great message for these people of his day. But that judgment is over. And yet we stand today, Father, on this side of the cross with all the gifts that you've given us. We look at Ephesians 1. We're joint heirs with your son. We're citizens of heaven. Father, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We are walking temples of God. What can't we do in your name? What have we rejected of doing because of the things that this world offers us? Free us of those things, Father, and help us to be flexible and faithful in you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.